0: I never intended to be a manager. I'm I'm just the kind of person who doesn't like working for other people or working environments that I'm unhappy with. So my thing has always been, if I don't like it, I'm just going to build it, right? I'm willing to take that risk. Of course, that risk is moderated now having children and, and deeper responsibilities. But um, I, I didn't go into making a business saying, hey, I want to go and have 50 people reporting to me and saying, oh, that's the boss, and oh, and... And, you know, ooh, boy, I wish I could be like him one day. That wasn't it at all. It was like, I want to build stuff, and I need people to help me. And um, I kind of fell into management, so I had no formal training. I had never read up about it. I, you know, I, I somewhat comically, it's funny because I think even in LinkedIn, one of my references from one of my co-founders was was a stunning, uh, we, we succeeded despite a stunning lack of business sense or experience. Um but I, I, it was weird because I, you know, I was 21, and suddenly I had people in their 60s working for me. And that was, I mean, like people my grandparents' age working for me, and I was their boss. And the decisions I made and the things we did, of course, in in concert with my partners, it wasn't entirely me. Give them credit. Uh, you know, it was it was pe- people's families were dependent upon us, and it kind of snuck up on me. I went from this thing of, hey, I'm going to start a company because I really like this idea, and I'm going to need some people to help me. It's like, oh, well, we're going to need accounting people and salespeople, And those people aren't all going to be 21-year-olds straight out of college. And they're going to have different expectations about what they have from a job. And and I it takes me back to, I believe the gentleman's name was Craig Benson, and the company name, uh, Cabletron, I believe was the company. And a quote that always stuck with me, and I'm sure I've mentioned this to you before, is... He started CableTron, built it to this enormous business, and he said, one day I woke up and realized I was running a billion-dollar company, and that's the day everything started going wrong. Because he stopped doing what just came naturally to him of building teams and building products and executing on his vision, and started almost kind of falling into the imposter syndrome of, wait a minute, I'm not the CEO of a billion-dollar company. I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. I need someone to tell me what to do. (laughs) When, right there, the proof is in the pudding. You know, he became... He became nervous about it, and I've always, that quote has always stuck with me of, of once he started thinking about it too much. And that's not to say everything should be by seat of the pants or what have you, but um, I guess one should, if, if you're not leaving a wake of upset people and destroyed lives and destroyed companies and upset partners in your wake, you should give yourself some credit for what you've built. Maybe it didn't go exactly how the management consultant said it should, or the business consultants, and maybe you're not going to get written up in the Harvard Business Review. But the proof is, is you're employing 50 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, and you're making products. Yeah. You know? So anyway, that's me getting on a tangent.
1: Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we are joined by Jim Brown to talk about building teams and being intentional about culture.
2: Are you interested in helping build the best DevOps and site reliability engineering talent? Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details.
1: So full disclosure, before we, before we get go, really going, um, all of us at one point or another worked for Jim, and we are happy to have him on as a guest to talk about building teams And we have been on some of the teams that he has built. So, with that out of the way, Jim, please introduce yourself.
0: It's nice to be on the podcast. Um, Just the briefest of introductions to myself. I use the joke, I've been doing internet operations since 1989, which is is true. Um, A lot of my career, I think, has just been luck of being in the right place at the right time. I happened to go to a high school that was one of the first, we believe maybe the first on the internet. And uh, when I went to college, I was looking around for a job to help pay for, for college, and a friend of mine happened to drop by NCSA, and they were hiring what they called sysadmins at the time, which were really just really poorly paid uh, students, uh, to swap out tapes and tape drives and things like that. And I accidentally wandered into the birth of the web, and just it's kind of gone from there. So been fortunate in that.
1: So if memory serves correct, one of your first jobs, you were updating the hosts file? Yes. So
0: so, uh, before DNS, which is hard for people to imagine, uh, there were several thousand, perhaps tens of thousands of hosts on the internet at the time. A lot of that was ARPANET. This is before kind of The commercial internet there's there's a lot of details we could get into it used to be that the government network was completely separate from what was called the commercial internet um, because there were restrictions on what you could do and before dns we had to have a way to find other hosts so there was a host file just like you would have on your local machine except it had all of the important hosts on what was the internet at the time And each organization would get, if I recall, two entries is what you were allowed. The beginning, there wasn't any kind of restriction. But then once you started having several hundred locations or a thousand locations, it got a bit crazy. So my very first job was we were doing some kind of renumbering. And I had to submit to, I can't even remember who the authority was, our new IP addresses that were going to go with the host names we had. So that's how far back.
1: (laughs) Before, DNS was always the problem. Right, exactly. Back
0: then it was just the host file. And I was thinking about that, and I'm trying to remember how we even... It's been so long ago, I don't even remember how things worked. I think we just, on each site, had a host file that we pushed around, like some very large companies still do because they don't want to rely on DNS. And and that's how we got from host to host. It was pretty crazy.
3: So how did you get Puppet running on those (laughs) boxes? (laughs)
0: Oddly enough, I was there at the birth of Puppet as well. I wasn't a participant, but I was at Lisa when uh, Luke did his first presentation. So, another coincidence.
1: So, one of the things that I I know about you and I like is your intentionality in fostering culture, especially remote work culture, and building engineering teams. Um, I was obviously part of one of the teams that you built, but you've done this a lot, and I was curious if you had... um, either interesting stories or advice for folks who are either considering getting into management or have accidentally found themselves in management and trying to figure out how to properly get the right mix of people and the right mix of attitudes towards work.
0: Sure. I briefly um, started a company when I was 21 and fell into management accidentally. I was kind of your typical uh, engineering student, and I went to work for uh, a company that was in the internet space very early on and I was unhappy there because the management was was, um, was not pleasant um, and I had this idea and I wanted to do it and I started a company with some other people and before I knew it we had to do things like managing it wasn't just I can sit in my, my bedroom and, and work on this this project we have other people and, and now we have salespeople and we have support people and eventually we had marketing people and so I, it wasn't something that one person, one person could handle. So I didn't have any formal training or uh, introduction to management. I never took any courses on it. Uh, so I just was kind of seat of the pants uh, kind of thing. And I can go on at length about, uh, about all of those things. There, uh, I've seen good management. I've seen poor management. I've seen great people try to be managers and be unsuccessful at it. Uh, I've seen people who I wouldn't necessarily be friends with be excellent managers because uh, they they do it very well as a as a function as opposed to innately to them. Um, one of the things I was thinking about and I think is is useful if people are thinking about getting into management is i'm not naturally a a people person uh, i'm I'm much more kind of your your typical engineer and and that's there are of course different levels there are people who are are very shy. Um, sometimes that shyness dissipates as you grow older. There are things you get older that you're completely confident with, whether it be speaking to people of the opposite gender or walking into a room and giving a presentation, that when you're younger may be very uh, frightening to you, that just with time you kind of realize, oh, what's the worst thing that can happen? What are the worst things that have happened here, right? Um, the thing I was going to mention is, not being a, a naturally a people person, uh, I see it in other people. Uh, all of my uncles are salespeople and my son, I can see it in him. He's in the early primary grades. And even when he was three years old, he would walk up to groups of people, introduce himself, start talking, asking about them. It's not something I coached him on. It's just built into his brain. So certainly there are, there are people among us who who usually are very foreign to a lot of engineers who have this natural ability to connect with people genuinely and be interested and talk, talk to them about these things, um,
1: yeah of my two kids one of them is very social in that manner and is able to introduce themselves and just sort of run a conversation and be interested and listen and wait for breaks in conversation and the other is um less inclined to that direction we'll say being polite
0: Um, and i think there's this is certainly something you can you can overcome right so uh a few things I would say is, you know, some people aren't aren't cut out to be managers, and that's okay as long as they're open to learning that. Uh, I worked with a gentleman who was my manager, and he was managing a team of about 10 people, just let's say it's a sysadmin team, and he tried really hard to be a good manager. He took management courses, he talked to us a lot, he was very open, he would ask for feedback all the time, and it just wasn't clicking for him. and as an individual contributor, he was astounding. It it reached the point where it was actually a little bit uncomfortable for me because I had wound up leaving his team, managing another team, and then his team was folded under me. And so I went from coming into this organization, working for him, and then him being reporting to me and him wanting to kind of get out of management. And it was interesting because as an individual contributor, contributor, he was astounding. He could uh, we had some of these old legacy systems, which astoundingly had no uh, authentication mechanism whatsoever, and it was tens of thousands of lines of code. And he went away for like four days, came back, and he had come up with this shim that he put in that just worked perfectly. And everybody on the team looked at it was like, this is brilliant. And so he was just really miscast as being a manager. And I think uh, in the organization he was in, that was kind of the promotion path was get into management, be promoted that way. And then once he was in my organization, we kind of restructured things so that people who were such an asset to us in that capacity could have that advancement. He was still a tech lead. He could basically do all of the leadership aspect that wasn't the management aspect, right? So technical architecture.
2: That's been a big struggle for our industry in general.
0: It certainly is. I mean, different organizations have solved it different ways, Um and I guess another thing in terms of management is um, I view it as you are, are there to facilitate and mentor and grow people. Um, we had a, a, a VP at one of my organizations uh, that when he was leaving, we gave him a little statue of an umbrella. And the idea behind that umbrella was he was the umbrella we stood under, and all the unpleasant things raining down from above didn't touch us because he was our umbrella and it's not that you want to build a fiefdom that doesn't interact with the rest of the organization but in that management role you're not only coaching your team and trying to get them to be the best they can but you're also in many ways protecting them from things that sometimes they don't have the skills to handle or they're not wanting to handle or it makes their environment unpleasant um, you know I think it's wrong if you don't let people cross or skip level have those conversations but you know, you try to protect your team.
1: Uh, one of my early bosses that I respect a lot. One of his comments was, "I hide my team behind me when things are going badly, and I hide behind my team when things are going well." Mm. He wanted to make sure that there was visibility. The individuals got got visibility when they accomplished something or things are going well, or there was a kudo to hand out. So senior leadership would come in and find the individual contributor and not thank my boss, but he was also very clear that as soon as things were going in the wrong direction, he would take the hit. He would never let his team take the hit individually. Um, And it was very effective.
0: And and, And another aspect of management is when people on your team outgrow you, that's success. That's not a failure. And what I mean by that is I've, had a number of people who I've managed in the past who've gone on to be VPs and such at other companies. And I think it's, it's wonderful to have participated in that role. I think some people, when they're technical managers, they feel they need to understand, uh, not necessarily understand, be able to do everything everyone on their team does. I like to view it as I'm willing to jump in. I won't put somebody in a position I wouldn't be in. But if you could think of, to use a sports analogy, Someone who might be a coach on a basketball team or a football team, or like a quarterback's coach, they can't do what the quarterback can do. Maybe they could when they were 26. Maybe they never were able to do it. Sometimes you see in sports, people, some of the best coaches were kind of marginal athletes, and the fact that this athlete is able to do something they never could, that's a success. That's not a failure.
1: Yeah, how many coaches have won a Super Bowl? As players.
0: As players? Is that a trivia question? Jared and I are the ones who...
1: (laughs) I mean, I've got no idea, so... Uh, I wish I actually knew the answer to that.
3: I'm going to say none.
1: (laughs) And yet they've coached these players and these teams into championships. So, like, that analogy is is very apt.
0: One of my experiences with managing uh, was mentoring that goes well beyond the technical level. Uh, Frequently, in managing an organization, I was often among the most technically experienced and competent people in that organization. Um, I've heard people say that if you're in a room and you're the smartest person, you need to find a new room. Um, But it's, it's also very satisfying having some people on your team who are just absolutely brilliant because you can, it's nice to be able to learn yourself while you're kind of going along and be a part of that or have a team go off and dig into some extremely hard problem and push something to the limit and be a part of that, which is, is great. You don't always have to be... Uh, the, in order to mentor effectively, you don't need to be the, the smartest person or the most technical person.
1: And well, Also, my- keep in mind that a lot of people have smarts in different areas. So you may be the smartest person about a, a particular algorithm design set, but other people may be better at other skills or tasks. So recognize that even if you feel like you're the smartest person in the room, other people bring strengths of their own.
0: And I think that's harder for me as a generalist. <laughs> But um, an area where I uh, was kind of almost like a life mentor, and this is very indicative of, of the technology industry and perhaps when it was going through its massive growth phase in the early 2000s, but I would often have teams that had, or an organization that had a lot of people just out of college, and they really didn't have a lot of life experience. So you have these people who are winding up in places like san francisco and working at kind of the companies of their dreams or working you know they went to school and they worked on things but then they get into industry and it's like wow it's enormous and this is so much bigger than anything i've ever worked on but i was working with my team on some fundamental things i mean one of the things that they would hear from me is if you're not maxing out your retirement account you're a fool you're in your early 20s you may or may not have a a a person you hang out with on a romantic basis uh, you likely don't have children, save your money. Save 20% of your money, max out your 401k, it's free match, just do it. And one of the satisfying things for me is I had somebody who we we recruited straight out of college as part of this company I was with. We had a program for recruiting people, and he now has two kids. And one of the things he, he said to me is like, oh man, like you have me put all that money away. I was <laughs> like, I'm so far ahead of so many other people with my retirement. And there were there were other things too. Of uh, we had a gentleman on our team who had a, a bike accident, and you know here's somebody who's early twenties, thousands of miles from home, uh, a lot of his life is work friends, and for us to be like, hey, wow, do you make to the hospital okay? Does he need help getting back to his apartment? You know, so these things kind of you don't expect to, kind of go into, and it's it's not like you're expected to be a parent, but a. a Recurring theme in that time in tech was so many young people who almost needed somebody who'd lived in the valley a little bit longer than them to show them around, you know, to to uh, kind of get their adulting on.
3: No, I think that's that's very important, and it's to go back to the sports analogy. I think a lot of coaches see that as part of their responsibility, especially in the collegiate level, where they're not only teaching. Lessons within the game itself, but also teaching life lessons and I think that's very that I think that's important as well, especially at smaller companies where you have more of an intimate relationship with your team versus some of these much larger companies where you may ne- maybe not have that uh especially if you're one or two reports away from uh your team
1: so I currently work for a very large organization um but i do like the intimacy, as Jared mentioned, of working for a small place that you actually know everybody who works there, you know, the founders slash owners, managers, the senior leadership, and you know them on a level that's not just, oh, they're the scary people above me somewhere lost in the hierarchy. It's no, I, I know these folks and I know their names and they know my name and we're friendly. Even if we're not like buddies, we're friendly. And that's really nice. It's
2: more than nice. It It builds a unique culture that's
1: really hard to replicate.
2: And one of the things
0: I was thinking about is I do have this through a lens of privilege of working in a lot of great companies, right? A lot of things I'll say about management um, is couched in working in largely functional organizations. Now, two of those are companies I founded. I had the power to just, you know, in concert with my partners, what I, say, what I said went, right? So I was able to really set the, the direction there. But in some of the larger organizations I worked with and uh, the firm I'm with now, um, it is a great culture already. So it's much easier to be successful in managing and building and attracting people and keeping people when the organization isn't um, subverting you the entire time with with uh, absurd levels of politics and backstabbing and, and bureaucracy and things like that. But I've, I've seen small companies go very wrong as well. I've, I've witnessed small companies with founders who were their bad uh, or unfortunate traits just permeated the entire organization and made it a very unpleasant working environment.
1: So one of the things that you and I have talked about, Jim, while I was working for you, um, is how to bring new folks onto a team and get them into the culture and do those things. I'm on a team right now that is staffing up rapidly. Accidents of fate, it happens, but we're growing the team significantly in terms of multiple of the original size. How do you help for lack of a better word, indoctrinate new members of the team to the culture and the way you do things in your organizational what, know-how or those kinds of things?
0: For me, recruiting, the best recruiting has always been networking. And the best networking is from the people who already work with you. And the best way to recruit people is to have an organization that's great. Because um, it hasn't been my case because I've been really selective about where I work, and if I get kind of the feelings that it's going to be not a great place to be uh, emotionally or politically or bureaucracy, I just don't even take the job offer. Um, so, So when you have an organization that people really enjoy working at, and a lot of people have told me they've worked at places that have just been so unpleasant, people will talk about it. People will talk about it to their friends. They'll talk about it at meetups. They'll uh, you know, people say, hey, where are you working now? Oh, I'm working at this place. Man, the team is awesome. The team is so great. And, oh, well, we've got this this one policy about, you know, the hours we work, or here's how we handle on-call, and it's just so pleasant compared to that other place we used to work to, together. right? And that's been um, an incredible recruiting recruiting tool. You do run into kind of two challenges there. One is often those pools are only so deep because most people only network so far. Uh, and you can wind up with a lot of the same people. You know, It gets hard to get diversity of opinions, diversity of backgrounds uh, when you do that. And you can also fall into a bit of a rut. And to talk about where we worked together, I had built a team. I had gone through my network. I had grabbed all the people I really wanted to work with again. And then it was like, wow, I need to get more people. And someone happened to know Jack just tangentially and we put Jack through such a long and rigorous process for hiring because there isn't necessarily that trust level. Now, once Jack I've came, I've been on- through
2: worse interviews. <laughs> I interviewed for Red Hat once, and they eventually—I just kind of, you know—I'm sobbing on the table of, "Please let me out of this room."
0: <laughs> when Jack came on, after he had been there for a year, pretty much anyone Jack would recommend, we'd hire. Right, So for other people on the call, it was this kind of cascading effect as Jack comes on, references Brendan. Brendan comes out, he gets interviewed for roughly half the amount of time and by half the number of people that Jack was interviewed. And then when it gets to Brendan and Jack are referring someone, so you, you kind of, it's, it's like... Um, I can't think of a good video game analogy. It's like you establish your footholds in these different circles, these, you know, what 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 Google Plus was supposed to be, these circles of people, right? And once you're able to enter that and someone's worked with you for a bit, that's the great networking. That's the best networking. Now, the way I handled kind of people that we didn't know and when I was at a company called CNET, we hired a lot and the way we approached that was I think, very different still than how people interview now, at least what I've heard in terms of of companies. And that was um, we developed a standard set of questions that we asked every interviewee, regardless of what level position they were coming in for. So we had, um, and this is another thing about, uh, if we can want to get into it about management and advancement for people, is trying to be absolutely as objective as possible and try to eliminate your bias in how you do promotions and uh, how you how you build people's careers, and what we had done is we worked with everybody on the team and we said, "What is the work we do here?" And we broke sysadmin, DevOps, networking down into about thirteen areas of things you should know. One of them, I remember correctly, is DNS, you know, load balancing, things like that. And then we talked to the, our team and we said, "Okay." How would you rate somebody in each one of these categories? Let's come up with questions that we think would be for a junior person just out of college, kind of a mid-level person, a senior person, and a principal-level person. Let's build this matrix of questions that we're going to have. Then let's take those questions and let's ask those exact same questions of every single person who walks through the door. And we're going to hire some of those people. And then once we've hired them and see how they work out in our organization, we're going to go back and look at what their answers were to those questions. And we're going to see, are these questions helping us identify the right people? So that's how we would evaluate it from a technical standpoint. But what we were also doing during those interviews is we were evaluating the person as a person. And I'm sure now, if you read online, there are guides on how to interview. uh, But there are things we'd watch for, like the person was willing to just admit they didn't know. Are they honest about things? Think about if it's four in the morning and you need that help. You want somebody who's just going to be honest about if they're stuck and not be afraid, not, not worry that that's going to hurt them somehow. There's kind of that honesty and trust. So we'd look for people who admitted things they, they didn't know something. we look for people who said they would ask for help. You know, we, we were very interested in qualities that were social and qualities that were team-oriented. Right? It was great when somebody said, oh, I'll dig into it and I'll read the docs I'll read the code because you know, the code is the documentation.
1: always and otherwise we tell ourselves
0: so i had to throw that in there but we would we would be evaluating on a technical basis but we would be watching from a social basis how is this person reacting to these things now i have received some feedback who said that isn't necessarily fair because even if somebody walked in the door for our most junior position we would keep ratcheting them up and we would ask them questions about building you know, multi-gigabit file distribution from multiple geographic points. And often they'd have absolutely no idea because they had no experience or hadn't seen anything. Of course, this is years ago. A lot of these things are better known now. And some people say, oh, well, that was unfair because you're kind of putting someone in a difficult pos- position. But we were watching to see you know, what their reaction was. And we were really looking for, you know, are you going to ask for help? Are you going to work as a team member rather than an individual?
1: So how does that strategy... Um how does that strategy work with the modern uh, prevalence of people sharing interview questions, either coding questions or other questions on things like code or HackerRank or all those, those stupid things and say, Hey, th- these kinds of questions are asked at this organization. Are these the kind of questions that you feel would hold up even if the interviewer knew the question beforehand or how do you think about that kind of stuff?
0: It is certainly more challenging. Um, I, one of the questions we used to, to ask was, um, you sit down at a web browser, you enter a uh, a URL, tell me absolutely everything that happens with DNS, right? And it was just, you know, first of all, we'd see if people understood what DNS was and then get deeper into, you know, re- resolution and delegation and, you know, you could, you could just get then down to the UDP and then, I mean, we would just let them go as deep as they could, right? Certainly those are the kinds of things that somebody can put on a website and say, hey, this organization is going to ask you how does DNS work? And they're going to expect you to eventually get into network. You know, if you, the most successful people answered it this way. Um, I think I've had the advantage of, of time and smaller organizations um, to help with that. It's, I think if, if someone, if, if you're, if, if I had someone come to me who had been kind of um, prepped for those questions, I think given, if you're asking questions in an area that you have mastery of, I think you can still detect whether or not someone is giving you the regurgitated book answer or whether they truly understand it, right? And and, that's totally fair. Unfortunately, it almost sounds adversarial. You know, for our interview processes and our hiring and recruiting, it was never adversarial. It was, we want to find the people that work well for us, and if you don't, that's fine, but we don't want you to walk away feeling bad about yourself or, or any of those things. But I think perhaps with so much competition now for some of these you know, plumb jobs, for lack of a better term, um, it does seem adversarial.
1: Yeah, and I'll confess freely that I do not do well on programming interview questions. If like he has to, you know, go into a doc and start typing code or whatever, that has never been a strength of mine. Because how often are you sitting there under the gun writing code with somebody watching and critiquing what you're doing? Never I'm critiquing
2: like, my Vim shortcuts.
1: Yeah, like that's not a that's not a real test of a person's ability that is sort of I don't know it's Frankly- sometimes
2: interesting to watch them Google for the answer to the question or Google how to use a specific API use the requests API in Python and see what they're sort of I've got to write a script to handle this use case how do I work through that problem solving steps but yeah it is a running joke about Britain and coding interviews
0: well frankly I think they're terrible I would not do that Um, now I ran a different interview process from the rest of the organization I'm currently with I I ran what we called operations differently I still do on the developer side what they did is they did developer practicals and they do this for the business analysts they do it for salespeople, they do it for developers and it is here's a genuine work item you have three hours to work on it whenever you want to go do it we will pay you for that time and then you present it almost like a uh, defending your PhD dissertation, right? You know, so it's like, and, and and we promise we will not use this in production, right? Here's a bona fide thing that you would need to do for a customer as a developer. Here's the requirements the BA has gathered. Go write the code, bring it back to us. If you hit three hours, stop and write down what you would do with the rest of your time, if or more time if you were given more time. And we found those practical tests to be far more informational than than these, what I view as really adversarial memorized. And, and I, I'm going to go on a, a, a rant here. I was trained as an engineer, as a computer engineer, and when we went into our exams for electrical engineering and computer engineering, we were able to bring two eight by whatever whatever they are, index cards. We could put whatever we wanted on them. And in fact, I had uh, co-students who would use photocopiers to reduce the size you almost need a magnifying glass to read. You know, it's like here's Maxwell equations at two point font. Um, My because it, because in engineering, when you built things, they didn't want you to build things without consulting the books. That wasn't what they were testing you
1: on. You know, real you, things fail if you get it wrong.
0: Yes, I mean lives are on the line, and it, not necessarily perhaps electrical engineering, much more in civil engineering. And I, I have a whole story about that. Um, but yeah, so to me, this this whole thing of let's memorize a whole bunch of algorithms. I don't think that's the right approach. I think the right approach is, hey, here's a data set. What do you think is the best algorithm for this and why? Right? Don't implement it on a whiteboard. Tell me tell me why you're going to implement it and then go use the library routine that maybe has, you know, on certain CPU architectures has assembly inline for it.
1: <laughs> so one of the other things that is notable to me is the country the company I worked for you at, Jim, is all remote, including the owners. Everybody was completely remote. And one of the culture of the company was everybody has to have good audio. And if you got on a call and the owners of the company were on the call and your audio sounded like you were talking into your laptop from across the room, you got called out publicly on it because it's how we communicated. And culturally, it was important that we were able to communicate easily and clearly and without friction. And that is one of the things that I've never really experienced anywhere else is that companies having good practices for communications and not just remote calls, but in terms of this is what we expect of our employees to, in terms of how you communicate, communicating clearly and all those things. And I really think that is an important, um, functional element to why that those teams work so well in your organization. Um, do you have any other things like that? The audio stands out to me, obviously, because that's part of the reason we're doing this podcast in the beginning, but I like, think an Im- important,
0: uh, other side of the coin to talk about with that audio is when you came into the organization it even says in your onboarding checklist make a call with somebody and that person is more than willing to work with you on your audio to test it to make sure it works and here are the steps for audio and also by the way this is a huge taboo at our company so I think what made that requirement fair and ingrained was It's okay to fail the first time. You're going to do it in private with somebody you trust. And you've been warned that this is critical, right? So I think it's okay to have those practices uh, if you understand that people have to have the time to get in the habit of them. Um, So I think that makes it fair. Because otherwise when you just say, oh, we were... We were very strict about this. It means, makes it seem like uncaring or kind of jerks, right? Some of the other things I've done at organizations, and it, it almost seems laughable to say these things, is everybody has to be on time for a meeting. I would just start meetings. I mean, I, I kind of got a reputation at one organization because people found out pretty quickly. I mean, we had to have seven people from different departments. And you know, it's costing the company a lot of money. And it's a half-hour meeting, so we're going to start it on time. Right. I mean, okay, if, if you fell down the stairs or something, you know, I totally understand. But we're just going to we're going to start on time. Uh, we're also not going to book things to the exact half. This is less of a thing with remote work, but you know, people would book half hour meeting, half hour meeting, half hour meeting. Half, so people need to drink water and do other things,
2: right? People need to walk down the hallway. <laughs> don't
0: don't do that. Just don't do that. Um, I wasn't as strict about agendas, but it was more kind of you, you. Do we have a point for this, or just it's okay to cancel the darn meeting? You know, don't. And these things seem laughable. I mean, they seem like the simplest of things. But if you get in the habit of it and you stick with it, then people kind of understand the expectation. We're all adults. You know, as as uh, my mother once said, they call it work because they pay you to do it. Um, so there's just certain expectations, and I think it's totally fair as long as newcomers are inculcated to that. This is how we do things. You know, let me be your guide for the first week. Let me be your buddy. Let me help you not commit these faux pas. But then you're going to be expected to do it.
1: Well, back on the audio thing, part of the onboarding kit in the organization was a headset. It, it wasn't a, you have to go buy a headset and that meets the standards. It was, no, we're going to ship you one, for you know, working with working for you. It was an expectation that you were going to wear the headset, um, but you were also very, very detailed about why. There was a, the whole thing about, if you can't hear the person you're talking to when you're trying to discuss a technical issue, it's going to be miserable for both sides. So don't be eating chips while you're talking on the call. On, and it's on not just
2: hearing that person, but hearing that person in a way that's, that's not painful, that's not like stabbing yourself in the ear. So you actually want to spend time digging into that technical issue, and you're not... That, the communication tool that you're using isn't the barrier that is keeping you from, from interacting.
0: Yeah, we don't have the whiteboards. Right. And I'm sure there's some, you know, 12 different Y Combinator startups for remote whiteboard, but, you know, and so you're sitting there and you're building it in your mind. And if all I'm hearing is, you know, you chomping on chips, (laughs) it's going to make it harder to do. Well, then, you know, it's, it's different thresholds for different people. I mean, one thing that kind of flows from as one of our founders is absolutely um, strict about this. And it's, but it's an own thing. And it's not an unreasonable thing. It's not like he doesn't like the color orange, so you can't wear orange.
2: And Brendan, I'm pretty sure um, the owners gave us a choice of which headset we wanted, as long as it was in these four.
1: Well, I mean, the, the reason that we're doing this podcast, and this is the 120th episode, I believe, is because I did not like the fit and the feel of the over-ear he- headsets that we had gotten, and so I bought myself an actual microphone microphone, and then the rabbit hole opened up beneath my feet.
2: It's a
0: dangerous hobby.
1: And here we
2: are, 120 episodes in.
3: You've got a team uh, someone on your team who's not maybe performing to the level you would hope they would or expect them to how do you either encourage them or you know get them to do better or how do you make the decision to say you know what we just need to to part ways
2: And I've been in so many companies where they will do everything they can to support uh, an individual that may not be performing as well as we would like And, you know, parting ways is the absolute last thing to be considered because you value that the humanity of the interaction of the relationship. And so building people up and mentoring people has has always been of utmost importance. Then, of course, then there's actually doing it.
0: So I have um, a lot of things to say on this topic, and there's kind of small company versus large company. Uh, in my large company experience, one of the ways to help develop people is to have a leveling system. You know, these are our these are our four levels on the team, or the five levels on our team, and making it objective uh, through largely the consensus of the team of how you'll be evaluated in each category of your job, and where we expect you to be. Now. The way that worked in the organization I built at CNET was we had 13 areas, and I, it was either four or five levels. But let's say you started out a junior person. To advance to the next level, you didn't have to reach proficiency of level two on every area. You had to reach level two on nine of the 13 areas. So maybe storage wasn't your thing. Maybe networking just makes no sense to you. Maybe you're weak in this area. Maybe you're really strong in this area. But in order to reach promotion it was a i believe 9 out of 13 and that worked for every level all the way up to principal engineer so you could have a principal engineer who might be at a junior level on one particular aspect of either storage or or something else uh and that worked okay and this leads into something a vp of mine wonderful guy told me one time was and this this goes to if if we have it still in the, in the conversation, the gentleman who was a manager who was failing as a manager despite trying really hard, was he was trying to train everybody at the same level. He was trying to get everybody to be interchangeable. Not because he believed people were cogs, but because he wanted to be able to say, oh, this project's coming up, great, we'll throw this person or that person on it. Or, hey, we got paged on it, it's okay because everybody knows X about Y. And what this VP told me, to use another sports analogy, was life is a football team and some people are the really fast people who will run and catch the ball and, and evade you, and some of the people are just going to stand there and not let you get around them. And you need to understand that on a team, uh, every, people are all going to be at these different levels, and it's his position was it was folly to try and train everybody to the same level. So kind of in the larger organization, that's easier because you can build these different rankings, and some people are motivated by money, some people are motivated by prestige, some people are motivated by just learning, and by having these distinct areas and clear objective ways for them to to advance, um, that's great. This system does fail sometimes. I had a, a wonderful person on my team, and she really wanted to be promoted. And despite a lot of learning and a lot of study, she just was not able to advance in those areas in that she needed to sufficiently to be promoted. Now that was very frustrating for her. But it was okay from an organization standpoint. That's not a person who's going to get managed out. We're not the military. The military is up or out. It's not like we have a whole new category or class of people graduating every year we have to hire from, right? So you may be a junior person in that job, and if you're happy with that, that's great. I've had people work for me who uh, just really like doing that level of job, getting that level of pay, and because their passion is somewhere else an eye-opening experience for me was my very first company. I hired a gentleman about two years in, and he was kind of in a support role uh, in networking. And I was always, I was of the mind at that time of, hey, advance, learn, advance, learn, because that was kind of my approach to life. And I would throw projects. He, He was excellent at what he was hired for. And every time I gave him a project for him to advance or learn something new, it would fail spectacularly. And just in these subtle ways. Uh, I had one, I want, and this is kind of an a, a example of the frustration and, and being younger is I had a person on my team one time who was claiming that he wasn't getting the email messages about this project, that he wasn't working well. And I got so frustrated. I shouted at him, do you want me to fax them to you? Um, you know, it's probably not the best thing, but we all have our moments. But I learned from that first gentleman that there are people who come into this industry and for them, it's just a job. You know, it's just clock in, do a great job, do a be wonderful with customers, be wonderful with coworkers. I don't want to learn that new thing. Not interested. I've got my fishing to do or or my golf or, you know, my kid has a project this weekend, you know? And that's fine. And that was a lesson I had to learn as a manager, is some people want to have that advancement, some people are fine with stasis. In terms of people who need to be managed out of an organization, I do see a lot of hesitancy to managing people out, and I will say, out of the hundreds of people I've had in my organizations, I think I've fired only three people. Um, unfortunately, I've had to lay a lot of my, many more people off than I've wanted to lay off throughout history, um, for various reasons. But I mean, the people I fired, one was was using drugs on the job. You know, it's San Francisco. Go stand outside. Nobody'll say anything. You do it in the building. You're gone. One person was stealing. With stealing CPUs. I mean, just things where it's just so clear of you were not supposed to be here. You need
1: You're, to be You're in flagrant else. violation of workplace yeah. whatever.
0: Right. I mean, just simple things. I mean, it was come on. There's, And I mean, if you work long enough, you hear even scarier stories. But um, I think the important thing about people who aren't performing but also people who are kind of negative uh, people who aren't working out make it easy for them to leave and i don't mean that in a mob type way i mean that in a think about what is going to be a good opportunity for them think about how to get them over the hump and compensate them if you think wow they're going to be working better at at that company uh and it it depends on why the person isn't working out maybe it's a skill level but if it's like a personality thing um you're not going to necessarily want to go to your colleagues in networking say hey this person you should hire but figure it out go to your management and get four weeks pay for them get six weeks pay because think about the impact it's having on your team the negativity it's less expensive to the company to just say hey here's six weeks pay go find something else you know and leave it (laughs) on a positive thing i mean try try and you know there's there's nothing gained i mean that person may be bringing a lot of negativity in your organization but that will cease when they're gone And you gain nothing from being negative to them, right? Because again, going back to the recruiting is you want people to hear about what a great place you are and come talk to you, right? Because you may not get along with that person. That person may not be uh, the great employee, but she may know six people who are the best team you've ever hired. You don't know.
1: One of the things that I do not miss about university employment is the folks who have become institutionalized or lifers as they, um, you've heard to them before Jim who are there because I've been here for 23 years and I want to hit 30 years and I'm just riding out to the end but I'm, I'm deeply unhappy with the organization I'm deeply unhappy with the work I'm doing I feel like I'm not listened to and I'm going to complain about it constantly and that is a that kind of attitude drags teams and departments and whole organizations down and you don't want to keep that that bad energy around
0: I think people have probably written about it and it's probably become more socialized and people are more generally aware of it. But yeah, that the negativity has a multiplier on it that's big. I mean, you could pull a number out of the air, but I'd say at least 3x. You can have three great people and one negative person is going to completely counterbalance that.
1: I was interviewing, um, a long time ago, I was interviewing, um, looking to exit the university life. And after the interview was over, one of the, the feedback I got was, you seem really talented, but you seem also really bitter. Are you okay? And I was like, wow, I I did not realize that it erupted me that much.
0: I think feedback is not a solved problem. This is a challenge. It really is. Um, I think more for, and I say that as a manager, of feedback to the manager. Because I, I'd like to think I've built very healthy relationships with the majority of, you know, I can't say all of the people I've had in my organizations either managing directly or, Levels down, but there's always um, at least I have to remember I have the bias of me. I'm willing to say things. I'm I'm willing to um, be a bit more direct. And part of that, and here's how you can get yourself to be more direct if you're if you're not feeling confident, have six months' cash of all your expenses in the bank account. Start out when you're young, as your expenses grow, continue to grow that little nest egg, and you will find this amazing freedom to be really direct with with people. Not not being negative, not being a jerk, but if you're like, somebody needs to say something about this and everyone's too afraid, having that cushion is very freeing, because you can say that thing, and what's the worst thing that happens? You go get another job. But feedback as a manager, I think, is challenging, because while I believe I have these good relationships, it's hard for me... To always remember that it's a employer-employee relationship, and no matter how confident or direct people in your organization might be, there's always going to be some level of fear. That fear may be almost immeasurable, um, but for many people, there's there's the fear of giving that feedback where they're concerned. Even if you build a trusting organization, um, you're always frequently concerned. What might happen if you give that honest feedback? And so, as a manager, often it's so difficult to get uh, kind of the the critical feedback. I think with practice, if you if you let people give you critical feedback in the open, in front of the team, you know, constructive things, obviously, then people I think will be more co- more um, comfortable with it, and also not building a team that's dictatorial, right? It's kind of a let's have a discussion, and it's it's almost like um, It's almost like this fantasy world of West Wing, where it's like, let's have the people who are passionate about this and caring about this have these discussions slash kind of technical arguments in an open way, and you know that the manager is going to say, okay, well, this is the direction we're going to go. But there's that freedom and that, that comfort to say those things. One example that really opened my eyes in management was I had a team member who everybody had a lot of trouble working with. He wasn't... A negative person, he wasn't a bad person. He, he, he had some peculiarities, you know, and some people in tech do, um, you know, perhaps a little bit less social. But I think one of the reasons, or I know one of the reasons why a number of people found it challenging to work with him is they felt he was very contrarian. And he had been in the business for a very long time. He made me look young, um, and he had been at all these places that people hear about from the ancient days, right? We did it this way at this place. And he would, I, initially, it was such a management challenge having him on the team. But then I, I had a watershed moment. It, this light bulb went in on a meeting we had one time. And we were making this decision. I can't remember what it was. Some technical decision. And I had 15 people in the room. And 12 of them were all like, you know, three people were silent. 11 or 12 were all, yes, this is the way we're going to do it. And I was going to go that way. And then this gentleman, who everybody always kind of had trouble with, spoke up and said, we shouldn't do that because of this and it's kind of like only Nixon can go to China kind of moment, is you can get into this groupthink, and I saw so much value in him suddenly. I was like, wow, let's work on the day-to-day stuff, but I, want, I actually i went from, oh man, this is a challenge, to I want him on my team, because he has the confidence and the experience to speak up and say, you guys are kind of all groupthinking here.
1: The last episode recorded was about interviewing and how to like some general things about interviewing and there's some dovetailing into this but one of the things we were talking about and i think you hit this really hard is you don't want to just hire people that are like yourself that think the way you do and look the way you do and talk the way you do because you get into that monoculture you get into that we're all doing the same thing because it's, it's our echo chamber of course we're going to do it this way and that's dangerous because you you lose um diversity of opinion you lose the ability to think about things more critically because everybody is kind of on board with oh this is the solution we have to we have to use. It's like, no no we don't. We we can say no to those things. We can we can back out of that. And that's a great example of why that's important.
0: And I think it's important to say he wasn't a negative person all the time. But he would and he would challenge things not to be challenging, but because based on his experience it's like, wait a minute. There's parts of this that smell like something that went wrong before.
3: To go back to the promotion process for just a quick second it sounded like especially in your cnet days it was more skills based slash you know have you reached this level yet so i guess you haven't i mean did you ever have where people were trying to do things to game the system to just get a promotion uh that seems less of a i guess it's a more challenging there versus in some organizations where you know you present i I built system x and you got a promotion because you built System X. But the company might not have really needed System X, but you only built it to get the promotion. So I'm wondering, did you ever have that challenge where you know people were trying to get promotions just to get a promotion and they were doing things that were, I wouldn't say detrimental to the company, but definitely weren't in the long run a benefit for the company just to get a promotion?
0: I think the success of that system in that organization worked because... In many ways we were a support organization. We were able to define what we did. And we worked with the whole team to kind of exhaustively I mean not every tiny little thing we might have done. You know, there's some things you do like renew an SSL certificate, you know, like once a year. That's, that's not gonna be a, a, a key thing in our in our schema, right? Uh, so I think that worked well because we based it so much on what what are we here for? What what is the purpose to the job? Uh, I had a group reporting to me that its job was to build things, like nowadays we'd say Chef or Puppet or um, an inventory system, Collins. We built things like this back then because back then they just didn't exist and we were reaching a scale where we needed them. Uh, there was kind of this, in my belief, a watershed moment where a lot of those systems became open source and became popular because suddenly somebody with a credit card could now run 100 machines. Before that, if you want to run 100 machines, you need to have a certain amount of revenue, Right. Um so in building some of these systems we needed, because they didn't exist in open source, I had this organization of about four people, brilliant set of people who did a lot of coding and would build things, and they kind of get a bit ivory tower. And this organization for a while didn't report to me initially, and I had a kind of famous event where uh, one of my junior admins had gone over into the area and was asking for help about how a system worked, and was just brushed off. And this, for lack of a better term, incensed me. And I went down to their floor and I walked into their cube area. And I said to them, just bluntly, I said, why are you, why are you guys here? i like, what do you mean? It's like, why are you here? Why do you have a job? i like, what do you mean? I was like, you exist for my organization to be more efficient. You don't. You're not here to just work on stuff you think is cool. Like there's a, a business thing here, and it's fine to have those those little projects, but y- you have to understand why you're there. So I mean, I think uh, in terms of that, and, and eventually they were organized into me. And the very first thing I said to them is, "Hey, you're part of my organization now. It's it's, it's my job to to help you out." Um, but I think w- that was successful because we were able to define so well what our job was. But I'll give you an example of an area where what you're talking about would happen. And that was before I was managing any of these teams, and I was I, I came in that organization as a contractor as a favor to a friend, and was just, I didn't really want to do a lot of stuff at that point, I wanted a really simple job in my life, and so I was just working as an individual contributor and, and doing some work for them. And management was frustrated uh, about progress on something. So they declared that basically they were going to look at ticket counts. They were going to look at uh, how many tickets each person was clearing, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And so I had some oh, rather tricks. I had some rather uh, cheeky coworkers. A number of them were from originally from countries in Eastern Europe, and they were like, for the simplest of things, they would be like, "Oh yeah, I can do that. Open a ticket for me." And it was like a five-minute ticket. So it was it was such an example of you know what you're measuring is is what people are going to do. So when you talk about the promotions and and gaming the system, I'd like to think I built a system that if you followed the rules of the game, you were improving yourself as a person, and you were more valuable to the organization, and you deserved to be compensated better. You deserved to have uh, more say in the technical architecture because you had proven yourself. So I guess in some ways you could look at it as a game, but I built the rules of the game like Last Starfighter, so I would get the people I wanted at the end.
3: (laughs) And and I realize that you know, especially for very large organizations, that is a challenge. Um, and, but I just you know, especially for smaller organizations, with it being a more intimate environment, you you kind of can judge where people are. But if you're, you know, if if you have hundreds of thousands of employees, it's really a different ball game.
0: I would say I, I'm this. I'm riffing here, but I would say the importance of the hire is also almost. Uh, asympt- asymptotic, right? It's like the smaller your organization, each hire is that much more impact. You know, if you're one person and you need that first coworker or that co-founder, my goodness, that's off the charts. And
1: right. then
0: when you hit sixty thousand people, you know, that one hire, mm, it's gonna be, you know, unless you know a serial killer sneaks in, you know, you're it's less of an impact.
1: There is always the risk. Um, we mentioned a little while ago about negativity and you can have a team destroyed by a bad hire. You can have somebody come in who is technically very brilliant and is either... What's the polite way of putting this? is either unpleasant to work with or makes people feel uncomfortable, but they have enough technical chops that they stay on the team because they're doing important work and they're, they're clearing critical things, but the rest of the team becomes demoralized and starts to leave and... I've seen cases where large teams, teams, 15, 20 people are chipped down, edged out, whatever, because of either bad hires or management that doesn't recognize that there's a problem that needs to be fixed. So it's, it can still happen at large organizations.
0: I agree. I've, this gets more into story time than a way to solve this. But uh, I had a customer of one of my companies and I was walking around their facility and there was an engineer whose cube was just walled off. And I asked about it. And this person had numerous screens, and numerous screens were filled with live looping videos of things one would never watch at a work environment. But this person's, maybe use the word genius, their technical aptitude was worth literally millions of dollars to the customer. I personally would try and figure out how not to get into that situation. I mean it was it was really surprising to me. And I've seen a lot in my time, but I was like, wow, that was the calculus they came to and sadly, uh there will be organizations where the calculation is the revenue to us, the benefit to us from a number standpoint will outweigh something we can get away with as long as it's not illegal. Right? And I think just the best thing is to try and avoid getting into those organizations on a much less crazy (laughs) uh, level of story. I've had a customer who had a team of about 10 people and there was, there's one person on that team who just, just was not good for that team. And that manager was a less experienced manager. And his viewpoint was, you know, I can fix this person. I can save this person. I'm going to keep giving this person runway. I'm going to keep, and I don't want the outcomes to be separation. Like we talked about having positive separations, but you need to do that calculation in your own organization and go, these eight people that I spent all this time recruiting and building rapport with and getting the wheels running, this one person's sticking it all up. And I just have to stop and go, let's figure out a way to to fix that.
2: So Jim, what do you think about hiring new managers?
0: Well, certainly, some. If if you're out there and you're thinking about, you might want to try managing. There's some things I can, I can say that maybe would be helpful. Um, talked a bit about before about people being people, people or not being people, people. I think engineers can actually figure this out. I I think you have the ability to think logically. And certainly you're not going to be a psychologist suddenly, but there's some really straightforward things that you can approach. And it's okay to checklist yourself into competence. It's okay if you're being honest and open. I'm not saying if you uh, have one-on-one with person, and I'm a strong believer in one-on-ones. Make time for one-on-ones. Make time for knowing what's going on. I mean, I when I worked in an organization where we actually had cubes, in addition to one-on-ones, I would literally just walk around and try and get a sense of, of how people are feeling and what the mood is. Um, in an ops organization, that can actually be very beneficial because you can tell if something's going wrong very quickly. like People are, are frantic or kind of nervous or huddled around things. But in terms of management, have the one-on-ones and have your own checklist. And if somebody ever says, oh, are you like going through a checklist? I mean... Yeah, it's because I'm trying to, you know, checklists are fine. Don't be afraid of checklists, both for your day-to-day work and for for management. Um, You want to understand what the slot is for the person in your organization. There are going to be people who work really well when the requirements are clear uh, and get frustrated when they're not. You're going to have people who like to go out into that area you haven't explored yet, or maybe it's a new version or a new technology they want to have that three days to go hiking around and that technology and come back to you. And they're fine with that, right? People are going to have those different personalities. Um, I have one person who, the, if you keep feeding his cue, he just keeps running. And the most frustrating thing for him is to come into work and it's like, what am I doing next? Like he, just, he just wants to, to keep rolling, whereas other people, they get nervous if they see a long queue of things. They only want to see what are my next two things right? And you have to learn that about people. You have to talk to people. You have to understand a little bit about their, their families and what's going on in their lives and be sensitive to that and how you're, you know, hopefully you're in an organization where you have the flexibility to work with people of, you know, maybe they have relatives coming into town or maybe they have a parent who's, who's ill and they need to move their schedule around. You're not going to be successful if you don't know about those things uh, or you'll be successful by accident you'll be more successful and you'll be more sincere and honest and genuine if you're working with people i mean you you need to care about it right even the people you don't necessarily like you need to look at it from the standpoint of. or when i say not necessarily like is like people you wouldn't necessarily be like oh let's go hang out right um, because maybe their interests are very different, or maybe their politics or their religion are different, or what you know, what they like to do with their free time. You know, maybe they're like Jared and they love golf. Which so, is so
2: weird. So I mean, you dude. You
0: gotta kind of look at it from the humanity, right? People are working a job, you need to understand why are they working the job. Are they working the job just for the money? Are they passionate about it? Why are they passionate about it? What frustrates them? Uh, you, again getting back to they call it work because they pay you to do it you don't have to solve everyone's problems you don't have to parent them but you're going to be far more successful in the team of understanding those dynamics and helping the people grow too because sometimes it helps to put people with two different very person, very different personalities on the same project because you need both aspects of those things covered you need the person who's the checklist person making sure you have all the coverage so you don't miss something and you need the person who likes to just kind of wander back and forth and 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 get that generalist knowledge, right? So, and those people may not necessarily get along at first, and you need to even be honest with them. I've told team members, I said, hey, you're going to be working with, you know, Harry, and Harry gets really frustrated if he doesn't have, like, six things in his queue. So as long as, you know, while you guys are working together, make sure... As you're working on the architecture here, that you always have a certain number of steps planned out, so he doesn't get frustrated. And if you keep his Q fed, he's just going to chew, 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 and you're going to love that, right? Almost like you can have a more senior person have the more junior person work as the assistant, and together they're far more effective. So, but you can't do that if you don't understand more about people. If 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 you just think that they are all the same, and and they're not. Being honest about everything. There are going to be things where. Uh, an organization will put you in a rough situation. Try and avoid being in organizations like that. Um, things like layoffs are going to happen. You know, famously, one thing that made me quite irritated as so honest about these things that I had an organization that hid some of that from me that was going to happen in my org because they knew I would just not be able to kind of, you know, I'd want to ease people into it as opposed to their approach of, you know, it was going to be an immediate thing. And that wasn't the organization with right now. That was that was in the past, and and something that really frustrated me because they weren't honest with me. Right? They, you can be put in a bind and and understand. In management, they are going to be the H R E things that you're going to have to be involved with, and and that's just people are people are messy at times. But have the one on ones. Um, if you find this area so foreign to you, uh, one thing I would say, and I'm not a uh, a big proponent of it, but if you go look at Stephen Covey's seven habits for highly effective people, and I'm not one to go with the whole guru thing or anything, and, and at CNET, we had a situation where he had a manager who was working hard to be a good manager, and he had taken the seven habits thing, and he, he viewed it as very valuable, so he wound up organizing it so everybody in his organization could take the course, and I had one senior person in my, in the org, who said to me, is like, he just flat out refused to go. Like, he just stayed in his cube. He didn't go in. Any- and he's like, this is just so stupid. This is ridiculous. This is so dumb. And this is also kind of getting the understanding of people. As I said to him, I was like, hey, to you, all this stuff is super obvious. But there are a lot of people on our team who, not all of seven of these things, but some of this stuff is new to them. They've never been introduced to it. And it's valuable to them. It's. They may be so technical, they don't think in terms of, like, the emotional bank account and the human side of things. So while I'm not saying you go out and spend, you know, don't go to whatever retreat he might run or whatever video course, but just just go on Wikipedia and read what those seven things are and think about how can you incorporate that? Because as engineers, they may, think, may be things you don't even think about,
1: right? Well, talking about that in particular, I was in high school, and this speaks to privilege and all those kinds of things, but... It was required reading in high school for, a, I think it was one of the English Lit classes. I want to say it was our 10th grade year. And we all got a copy of the novel, the, you know, the 120 page book, and we had to read it and, you know, write essentially book reports about it. And at the time it was painfully obvious to me, but it was a lot of folks that I was in school with were like, huh, what is this? It's
0: like, and oh. that's okay, right? It's yeah. okay to learn. It's okay to not know. And and I'll give you contrasting examples. The gentleman who had us all go to the seven habits, even though some of us were like, eh, we went, because while he was not succeeding as a manager, he was authentic, he was genuine, he was honest. We could see as a person he was trying, he was struggling to do the job. He was struggling to, he wanted to be the person that could help us. was failing at it, but he was trying, and we all appreciated that. Contrast this with someone else in the organization who issued a book to everyone in his org that just showed up in their cubes. I think it was Who Moved My Cheese was the book. And the people I worked with at the time, we talk about this. We talk about this a decade later, about how this was so tone-deaf, because that was a person in the organization who clearly had never expressed empathy uh, towards the organization. And uh, so when it came from him, everybody's like, this is ridiculous it was almost insulting whereas if this gentleman who had the challenge with managing us and was struggling had handed it out it would have been a different reaction it would have been you know i think you missed with this one right we know you're trying but honestly this is kind of you know i don't i think you missed on this one did somebody tell you this was a good idea you know there would have been that conversation right so have an organization where you can have those conversations and and be genuine and care you're you're spending Hours and hours and hours with these people. Yes, they're not your family. Yes, they're not your life. Don't make it your life, but they're people. They're not robots.
1: But honestly, think about the fact that if you do a 40-hour work week, which is common in the U.S., that you spend as much time with your coworkers as you do with your primary partner, really, during the course of a week.
0: Or you can be like me and marry somebody you work with, and then you get double the time.
1: It's mm. a bold strategy, Cotton.
0: <laughs> it has worked out for me. That's good. I gotta be careful there. She was in a completely different organization, so you, I, and and a little bit of detail there. Um, she came in with a, an acquisition we did, and it was fifty-fifty whether or not she wound up in my org. And had she wound up in my org, I never even would have dated her because that's completely inappropriate.
1: She is your better half, Jim. And there's a certain sense of workplace dynamic that people should keep in mind: that the relationship between a manager and employee there is an implicit power differential. Even if you are friendly, even if you consider yourselves like, hey, we'd be friends even outside of work and we'd go to a ball game or do whatever it is together. When you're in a work situation, the power differential is very real and you can't ignore it. And that's part of the reason your advice, Jim, about um, the feedback and the honesty and the trust, it works, but there are still going to be things that employees are going to be hesitant to tell their managers because of this power differential that always exists. And you have to be aware of it. And when you bring romantic entanglements into the workplace, things get messy real quick, especially if it's up and down the, the reporting hierarchy.
0: Yeah, it's a complete uh, no-no for me there. But in terms of the... We, we talked about that, of the, the feedback. Um, I think if you're... If you don't demonstrate that you will accept the feedback and accept the criticism and accept the correction, a challenge is people will just go silent, right? Because there's that power differential. Yeah. We kind of talked about how that you can never completely eliminate it, but in, in cases, a motivation for reducing it as much as possible is you just miss out on that feedback, right? People go silent and then they start to wonder, is this the right place for me? Or am I being heard? You know, um,
1: and then good employees leave without giving you an honest reason why they left. And you don't know, you don't have any certainty about what I could have done better to retain that employee or to have the team been more cohesive or whatnot, because they stop communicating. And once you, once you stop talking, once you stop having feedback of those kinds of things, it's really hard to have anything go well. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers we would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. And Jim, thank you once again for joining us.
0: It was a pleasure. I feel that that was...